Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a next-generation politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a leading movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Neil, and at this week's Roundtable, Kanisha, Jed, and I spoke with Dr. Frederick Hess, Senior Fellow and the Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, Founder and Chairman of AEI's Conservative Education Reform Network, Editor of the Education's Week Straight Up column, and a prolific author, educator, and political scientist. Rick has been studying education reform and its failures for decades and shared his astute analysis of why. At root, schools weren't built for what we're asking them to do. Public schools were founded back in 1635 by Protestant New Englanders to promote virtue. Only 1 in 20 citizens went to high school way back then. Today, we have very different expectations and demands, yet our schools are predicated upon the same model. Meanwhile, most Fortune 500 companies don't last more than 50 years because they were built on models that have become antiquated or obsolete. Such businesses didn't reform, they went out of business. Schools don't have the option of doing so. We're asking them to do something that's incredibly hard to do, and unsurprisingly, they fall far short. Rick notes that today, we need schools that are much more comfortable with individualization and personalization, and we need to build systems that are comfortable embracing that which is a really big lift after centuries of doing things a different way. We talked about intellectual curiosity and equity, whether teachers have a responsibility to meet the needs of every student, the pros and cons of technology and schooling, how schools can balance passion and standardized testing, and what standardized tests are and aren't good for. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. My name is Jed. I am a high school junior from New York City. I've worked with Next Generation Politics looking at media literacy and various other civic issues. I'm very interested in learning how technology intersects with education and how we can use it to build ourselves a better schooling system. Hi, my name is Kanisha, and I'm a high school junior from Queens, New York. And in addition to being on the podcast, I'm also a facilitator at YVote. And today, I'm just really excited to kind of analyze the different ideologies and viewpoints when it comes to our current K-12 educational system, because I think especially with colleges going test optional, with the pandemic, and with how everyone has been forced to adapt, there's been a lot of new perspectives that have been brought up. And I think a lot of people have a lot more opinions about our education system. And coming out of this like two-year stretch of being online and facing so many different obstacles, whether it be, you know, because of the pandemic, because of funding strains that came from the pandemic and more, I just really want to talk about how we can recover from this and what it has taught us about our school system. And just in general, getting your thoughts on our current school system, its pros, cons, because I'm just really excited to hear your perspective on that today. Hi, my name is Neil Pereira. In addition to being a part of the NGP, I'm also super interested in in education and business. I'm really excited today to learn, you know, definitely about your perspective on education and how the pandemic has really impacted the education system in America. Hi, I'm Rick Hess. I'm a director of education policy studies at American Enterprise Institute, a DC think tank. Once upon a time, I was a full-time college professor. Before that, once upon a time in the last century, I was a high school social studies teacher. I write books and I talk to people and I try to see if I can't help a little bit in informing the way we as a country think about K-12 and higher education.
So to start us off, I'd love to get a bit more about, you know, the research you've done with the American Enterprise Institute, what like topic areas you explore. First job out of, out of my master's degree three decades ago was teaching high school social studies. So I've always been interested in questions of teaching and learning and the stuff of, you know, social science. I got my PhD in political science, so I'm a political scientist. My first book was looking at how school reform played out in 57 urban communities across the country. Problem was, well, we want to like to talk about which reform works. It turns out people didn't actually stick with any of them. They would bring them in and roll them out over and over again. So I talked about this phenomenon of spinning wheels. And, you know, that was a quarter century ago. Brookings published that. And I was back then I was a professor at the University of Virginia. And I've been at AEI 20 years. And in that time, I've written books about how public schools respond when you introduce things like charter schools and school voucher programs. I've written about the history of American education. I've written about the rules and regulations that constrain leaders and how leaders deal with this. I've written about teacher empowerment. So I've, I've written about a lot of different topics in K-12 and higher ed. Talking about what you as an educator feel about our current K-12 educational system and its pros and cons, what would you say are like, what are some of its, you know, greatest flaws that you've seen, systemic barriers among states or maybe focusing on certain cities or districts? Like, what are those like kind of through lines in our education system that you think are either good or bad? I mean, it's useful to keep in mind that schools, you know, weren't built for what we're asking them to do today. If you look at the average, say, Fortune 500 company, its average lifespan is less than 50 years. So most companies that people are familiar with today have been, say, founded since 1970. That means that you had big, successful companies. Once upon a time, airlines like TWA or Pan Am, that may have been really good at what they did, but they relied upon certain models of staffing and how they organized themselves, and how they managed information that wouldn't make a lot of sense today, but they didn't have to reform. They just went out of business. And new folks started doing these things who were able to build using new talent pools and new labor force models and new technology. So look, schools, the American public school system, as we know it, was started centuries ago, primarily to promote virtue is understood by Protestant New Englanders. That meant that they wanted to get kids into school and they wanted to have kids in the school so they could become literate and learn to read the Bible. That set a whole bunch of expectations about what schools are for and how you staff them. You know, people got to keep in mind that a century ago, say 1900, only one American out of 20 finished high school. The idea that graduating high school is a normal thing has only been with us for three generations. Of course, It didn't matter much in 1900, because in 1900, four out of five Americans worked in farms or factories. So you didn't need a high school degree. What's changed over time is, you know, what you need uh, at the age of 18 or 22 to be an engaged citizen and to be self-sufficient economically. What's changed is that we used to have a labor pool built around teachers who were going to start teaching at 22 and stop teaching in their mid-50s. And this made a certain degree of sense when that was the American labor market. Today, that's not true in any walk of life, but we've still got staffing models that don't fit that good. And we've got schools that are built around a whole set of tools, chalkboards and textbooks and such, that have changed radically, but we haven't really changed how we think about leveraging the tools at our disposal. 
So what's the big barriers? I, mean, I think the big barriers are pretty consistent. And it's that we've got schools which, you know, we want them to do a certain set of skill building for a fundamentally different world than existed a century or two centuries ago. But we're still using staffing models and recruiting models and compensation systems that were built for an earlier era. And we're still working with tools um, and assumptions about how do you deliver learning that grew out of an earlier era. Trick is that unlike those TWAs and Pan Ams, school districts don't go out of business. So therefore, it's important that each of these schools and each of these systems rewrites rules, rewrites regulations, revisits collective bargaining agreements in ways that allows us to serve where kids are in a quarter through the 21st century. And that's just incredibly hard to do. You know, with the onset of the pandemic um, and, and many students sort of now uh, replacing those original education systems with systems of their own, you know, self-teaching, would you encourage students to self-teach rather than advocate for school systems to change the way that they are uh, teaching, you know, during this sort of pandemic setting? You know, I think we need both. The U.S., we spend somewhere between seven to $800 billion a year on public K-12 education. There's about 50 million kids in the U.S. in public schooling, so you do the math. We're spending somewhere between $14,000 and $16,000 per kid on average. In a place like New York City, where you guys are at, you know, it's substantially higher. The idea that, you know, we need students to figure out how to discover their own opportunities, and they've got to figure it out for themselves, and all those money and all of these educated adults are just going to go along doing what we've gotten used to doing doesn't make a lick of sense. Too many students don't have the tools that they need, don't have the know-how, don't have the support. And reason that we invest all of this money and all of this passion in these public schools is because we know that it matters. So we absolutely want to do everything we can to help students, you know, engage and build opportunities for themselves and discover chances to learn. But that shouldn't be on students' shoulders. What we need to do is think, how do we open up school systems so that we're meeting a lot, a lot of different kinds of needs? Remember, if the point of the public school, you know, the first uh, common school laws providing for public education in what's now the U.S. was Massachusetts Bay Colony 370 years ago. They were worried about making sure kids didn't become witches. When Horace Mann uh, and the Massachusetts Board of Education launched the common school movement in this country two centuries ago in 1830s. They were worried about making sure Catholic kids didn't grow up to be too Catholic. They needed to be more American. This was not about letting children discover who they were. It wasn't about building a whole array of skills. This was about making sure kids would fit into a mold. That's what our schools were built to do. Now, I think what you know, it, it is clear in the world today with the explosion of information and media and opportunity and all kinds of new ways of doing business and the pace of change is we need schools that are much more comfortable with individualization and personalization and much more comfortable with the idea that students learn different ways and have different needs and are looking for different avenues. And what we need is to create school systems that are comfortable of embracing that and accepting it. And that's just a really big lift after we've been used to doing schooling, you know, certain ways for centuries. 
I kind of want to get your perspective on what you feel the role of an educator and the responsibilities of a student are and how that kind of works together in what our public school system looks like right now and how you feel it could improve in the future. I used to supervise student teachers back last century, again, 1990s. You had this real problem that I was doing my PhD at Harvard, so I was supervising teachers and, you know, student teachers in Boston. And it was no trick at all back then, back when I taught Louisiana or supervised student teachers in Massachusetts, to encounter teachers who would say, I can't teach that kid. That kid just doesn't want to learn. This was something you said out loud as a teacher. And one of the great things, I think, of the last quarter century of the No Child Left Behind era was we set the expectation that, no, it's not okay to think that way. Educators are here to help every child learn. That if a kid's not connecting with you, your job as an educator is to find a way to connect. So that's fantastic. The problem is, I think we have overshot in some sense. We have now made it so that educators and politicians and everybody else are scared to death to say it's not all about teachers. It's also also about students. It's also about families. For me, what's the right role for the educator and the student? The right role for me is it's got to be a handshake. You can't teach somebody who refuses to learn from you, but it's the educator's job to find a way to get the student to reach out that hand. And the expectation for students is that they have to make that effort. They have to find ways to, you know, if they're not interested in this, I can live with it. But what are you interested in? Students have to ask those questions. Parents have to take the own responsibility to tell the kid to put down the iPad to pick up a book. Parents need to read to the kids at bedtime. They need to read on different kinds of stories until they find stories that kids are interested in. So it can't be about just on educators and schools. They have a sacred responsibility, but it also has to be about students and families saying, all right, I have to own this. This is my education. I have to find my passions. I have to find educators who are doing their job with me. I have to do my homework. I have to explore opportunities. That it can't be passive on the part of either educators or students. I mean, as someone who's been in like the public school system their entire lives, I think one of the biggest obstacles to that is the whole idea of, you know, like intellectual curiosity and what students possess it and what students don't. And elementary school were just my zoned kind of like default school, you could say. And then in middle and high school, I went to schools of like my own choosing. So more like magnet schools or schools where like, for example, my high school had to take a test to get in. For middle school, I had to have certain grades to get into that school where there was some sort of like filtration system. But I think one of the biggest obstacles I've seen both in like my own school settings and my peer school settings is how do you make someone intellectually curious? And I think especially when it comes to like the elementary middle school age, it, like you were saying, there's so many factors that go into it, right? Goes into, you know, what their parents and their families are doing as well as what's happening in school. Obviously, elementary school education is really crucial in shaping students' attitudes towards school. So I kind of wanted to get your perspective on what you've seen work, what educators have done to actually kind of like plant that seed in students' minds and how that's led to developing and cultivating that mindset in students to be more intellectually curious. You know, we all come at this with our own background. I, I, I too, you know, I was a K to 12 public education kid. I went to pretty good schools. I I went to like Fairfax County for middle and high school, but I hated school with a burning passion. I was a terrible student. 
you know, I got beat up all the time through K6. And then I was just kind of tuned out all the time through 712. So, you know, for me, part of the problem with school is that the way we define good school is not necessarily about making schools a good place for kids to learn. You can run schools where you're covering the content, where kids are, you know, showing that they've learned what's on the reading and math test, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you've engaged kids as learners. And so for me, the, the, the challenge here is like, look, not everybody's intellectually curious the way it's understood by whoever's saying the sentence. Like, I, I, to this day, I, know, I never wanted to read Herman Melville when I was in high school, and I don't want to read Herman Melville now. I like Dostoevsky. I think he's interesting. I think Tolstoy is boring. There are people I've known in my life who are hugely interesting when you get them talking about cars, who don't want to spend two seconds talking about archaeology. There are people who are fascinated by dance, who don't care about politics. So part, I think, what we need to do is understand that intellectual curiosity doesn't mean we've got to turn all students into people who are going to embrace the curriculum that they teach at Swarthmore or Yale. We need to make schools places where kids get to discover passions that light them up. Some people love to work with their hands. Some love to dance. Some love math. We need to create school environments where we make sure that every kid is literate and numerate, but where we're not making expectations that every kid wants to go sit in college and read Proust for four years. If you want to figure out how to work on aerospace engineering and you want to do an apprenticeship program, there's no earthly reason you should have to take two years to go to through community college and do this. Louisiana's got a program so you can do this in grades K to 10 to 12. And you can go out at age 18 and make $55,000 a year in Louisiana and do work that's desperately needed that you find interesting. Like that is what we need. We need more options that meet more kids in the place that they want to go in, in the course of their lives. And uh, that's not what our schools were designed to do. It, it works in weird ways with this talk we have about equity, equity in terms of making sure every child is well served, that every child is valued that we're doing right by every kid, that kind of equity sign me up for. But I worry sometimes that equity is getting used in funny ways, which is about actually failing to challenge kids who need to be challenged, which is about making things uniform rather than making them fit the needs of different children with different interests. And so I think we also need to be very conscious about how these reforms are playing out. How do you suggest that we balance or schools balance passion with standardized testing? And more specifically, when we assess students, do you think standardized testing is a, is a good mode to assess a student's ability? Or, or more specifically, how does it prepare a student for later in life when they may not even be using the skills um, that they're studying for to prepare for a standardized test? Standardized tests, uh, at least the kinds we use like in K-12, the uh, state assessments uh, that, that, that exist you know, in every state under every Student Succeeds Act. Um, are lousy for measuring ability. But I think they have a real value. It's important in a country like the U.S. in the 21st century that every child be literate and numerate in a, in, a, in a fundamental sense, that they have the tools they need to engage as a citizen, to advocate for themselves, uh, to be able to find employment. And that means that kids have to learn to read and write and do math. It's very hard to systematically measure, you know, how kids, how hundreds of thousands or millions of kids are doing across New York State today with anything other than a standardized assessment. 
So I think they have a really important role to play that way and to make sure that schools, you know, are being held to account. But it's also true that we absolutely went test crazy in this uh, country over the last 20 years. We passed a law called No Child Left Behind in 2001, which I mentioned a couple of moments ago, which in some sense was really valuable. We, we, need, we have an obligation to make sure every kid is literate and numerate. Um, but the problem was, instead of that being a floor, that became the obsession of what schools do. You wound up with schools doing ex- insane amounts of test preparation. Schools got talked about as good schools because of the movement in their reading and math scores, or bad schools because reading and math scores without regard to what else was happening. You wound up with all kinds of gamesmanship and manipulation in order to make these numbers move. Look, all of this is fundamentally at cross purposes with either healthy education or certainly engaging student passion. So what's the right way to think about this? The right way to think about it is, look, if schools aren't teaching kids to read and write and do basic math at grade level, we got a huge problem. Schools need to do that. And we need to assess to make sure kids are getting there. But that's only a little piece to my mind, 30% of what schools are should be doing. The biggest piece of what schools are doing is everything else. And I don't trust standardized assessments to capture that. I think there's lots of other ways that we can and should think about whether schools are doing that stuff well. But what, we, what you don't want to do is you don't want to wind up dumbing it down to the couple of things we measure. What you want to do is make sure you're laying the solid bricks at the foundation and then focusing on the things that matter for you know these kids with all these different needs and passions. I just wanted to know your opinions on college level exams like the SAT or the ACT. What is your opinion on on how well it, it quantifies a person, especially you know in this day and age where wealthy students are are often preparing for for months, if not over a year, for these exams, and and students who may not be you know on that level of a, of the wealth spectrum, you know, don't have as much time, don't have access to the resources, and thus statistically, you know, get a lower score. None of these tests ever measure a person we wind up thinking that these test scores are a measure of somebody's worth or moral value or anything. They're not, but they do measure certain skills. If somebody is going to build a bridge that I'm driving my kids over, I want to know that they can pass materials engineering, that they haven't just taken the classes, that they've demonstrated mastery. Well, what the SAT and ACT do do reasonably well um, is predict how well kids are going to fare their first couple of years of college. Now, it's also true, as you know, that these things are correlated with other stuff, like affluence and parental education. But what listeners want to make sure they remember is that this is true of everything. In fact, the SAT and ACT were cre- SAT was created a century ago because college admissions up to that point had been folks who went to the high schools and graduated students, places like you know these old famous schools, would call up the people who ran admissions at Harvard or Cornell or Yale, and they would say, ah, we've got 11 kids for you this year. And they'd go, great. And if you were a kid who was growing up in Iowa or Minnesota, you you had no connections. You weren't going to go to any of these schools. You were locked out. So the reason that the SAT was created was so that all of these people who were outside of the privileged circle would have some way to demonstrate their college readiness on an apples-to-apples comparison. And look, let's think about the other things. If colleges don't look at the SAT or ACT, what are they looking at? They're looking at classes you take. Well, we know that kids who go to fancy schools that offer more AP options or international baccalaureate, they can stuff more of that stuff on their resumes. 
Uh, we also know that GPAs are less reliable in some places because there's great inflation. And particularly when you have active parents who are paying a lot of money, you wind up with more great inflation because you don't want to aggravate those parents. There's letters of recommendation, of course, but letters of recommendation are actually heavily gained. We know that some kids and families are much better at knowing how to lean on teachers, and some teachers know what kinds of letters get you into fancy colleges. There are, of course, personal statements, but lots of personal statements wound up being heavily revised or even written by parents or by tutors. So look, at the end of the day, I'm absolutely open to people who say, look, the SAT and ACT are imperfect. They advantage some folks more than others. Sure they do. But also with all the free tutoring options, with the retake options, with uh, the online accessibility, I would argue that's less true today than it was 10 or 20 years ago. And that if you look at the SAT and ACT alongside all of the other stuff that's going into a college application, these are actually probably the fairest way for students to actually make sure they're getting looked at on their merits. So that, that's kind of where I'm on it. I wanted to know what your thoughts are on technology as it intersects with education and kind of how the future of our schooling systems can incorporate the technology in a meaningful way. I know people are, are, are hesitant or a little scared by it, but I think if, if done properly, it can be pretty revolutionary. So what's the way to go about that? I mean, yeah, and people are nervous for good reason, right? Like, we just did two years of remote learning when kids would be sitting like on their bed or their kitchen table and they're staring at this little box with a whole bunch of folks who are like hiding their face on the camera and teachers droning at them for three hours. Like, this is terrible. So, you know, the, the, the skepticism is well-deserved. But look, the right way to think about it is technology is counterproductive in something like schools and learning when it dehumanizes them. Um, the problem with so much, say, pandemic remote learning was how inhuman it was. You felt less connection with your classmates. You felt less honest back and forth conversation. You knew your teachers less. On the other hand, technology, we know, can also work the other way. It can actually cultivate human interaction. You know, there are family members that we only saw during the pandemic because of Zoom. We wouldn't have, there's grandparents, there's people in other countries we wouldn't have spoken to for years. Um, but we were able to see each other and laugh and smile and celebrate. Um, when you think about, uh, you, you guys are too young for this, but like when you're dealing with doctors, it can be really hard to schedule a pediatric appointment. If your kid just has a call for something, sometimes being able to do a 10-minute Zoom can really put your heart at ease or let you know what they need and they can write a prescription and get your... And so you actually are getting more personal care, even though it's Zoom, which is not human, but it's more human than not being able to see them at all. Um, in schools, the way to think about this is, look, um, teachers do a lot of stuff. And some of it's really valuable. When a teacher is putting a hand on your shoulder, when a teacher is sitting down with a kid and really having a heart-to-heart -heart about an essay you wrote and explaining what worked and what didn't, when a teacher can get a small group together and really wrestle with an important issue of civics or science, that stuff's awesome. But teachers also spend lots of time on routine stuff that doesn't add much value. All of this stuff, which winds up, depending on who you're talking to, can eat up a quarter, a third, half of, say, a special education teacher's day is time that they're not actually spending doing the human stuff. So how does technology help? Well, I think technology should be about creating more of the human in education. So if you can 
do your homework and file it in and drop it in a Dropbox so that it's all done and teachers don't have to collect the paper and then grade it and pass it back and mark it. And that gives you 10 more minutes to actually talk about it from the get-go. That's fantastic. If you can create a chat room so that as you're reading a novel, you guys can actually have a conversation with each other so that people are warmed up and into it and hearing each other's thoughts before class starts. That's fantastic. If instead of teachers having to stand up and do problems on the whiteboard and then erase them, if teachers can instead let kids do that kind of practice, feedback, iteration, math problem on an iPad at home so that when you're coming together, you can talk about where you're stuck. What you can do is you can use technology so that there's more learning, but the more learning is happening on the edges and more of what's happening in the heart of the classroom is that uniquely human stuff. So that's what technology should look like. It looks like that too rarely nowadays. But, you know, you know that, that's, where, that's where we want to be headed. That's all for today with NextGen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for NextGen Politics.